It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. For this week's episode, as you guys heard in the follow-up, when Zach and I were discussing the elements of this case, we have discovered that it is incredibly difficult to find accurate information about the case that is sourced back to an actual case file. The name Dr. Sandra Lean came up in that conversation as who seems to be very possibly one of the, if not the only person who actually has the case file, has, has studied it, and has been working on this case for years. So with that information, uh, one of our listeners had reached out to Dr. Lean. She reached out to me, and rather than me sort of explaining what I think happened and then bringing her on to correct me, we decided to skip a step, and I am joined today by the author of the book, Innocence Betrayed, Dr. Sandra Lean. Dr. Lean, thank you so much for taking the time to to clear all of this up for us. Thank you. And with that, we'll get right into it. So our, our plan here is we're going to kind of stick right with our format where today, uh, there, there, first of all, there may be some corrections and stuff we've already covered, but we're going to move right through uh, the discovery of Jody's body, uh, the condition of her body, and the, the investigation that night with, uh, with Luke and the family and everyone with the police. And then Dr. Lean has graciously agreed to join me again uh, as we move on to talk about, in another episode, the case against Luke. And then the case for innocence. But today we're going we're gonna to try to kind of stay focused on the, the facts of the things that happened that night. So, uh, Dr. Lean, before we get into that, do you want to briefly explain to the audience kind of who you are and how you came to be connected with this case? Yes, I, I had nothing to do with the law, justice, anything like that in the beginning. I just happened to live in the adjoining village to where Jodie was murdered. And my daughter attended the high school that Jodie was found behind. So it concerned me that they had jumped so immediately to the conclusion that it was this 14-year-old boy. And what if it wasn't? Right. And so what is it? You, you're, a, you're, a, you're a doctor, uh, or I don't know if it's a PhD, or are you a medical doctor? What is your, your background? No, PhD in criminology. My first degree was in psychology and sociology. I then went on and studied for a specialist paralegal degree uh, diploma and then went on and did my phd oh wow and so all of that began was it because of this case or just after this case the paralegal and the, the phd were because of this case the psychology and sociology had done before 
So how did you, other than your interest in the case, which obviously led to your furthering education, how did you get connected to the case in a way where you were actually able to obtain access to some of the case file? Back then, there were very, very few people in the local area even considering that you might be innocent. Mm-hmm. So Luke's mum heard my take just through local gossip, really. Okay. Um, put a note through the door of my workplace and asked if I could help them. And at the beginning, I had no idea how I could do that. But then over time, I had to learn the different justice systems because in, in the UK, we have three in total. So, so I had to learn the different justice systems to make sure I wasn't guiding them through a justice system that didn't apply here in Scotland. Sure. And then from there, I I started working with a couple of the lawyers that were involved in the case. And that's how I ended up with access to the case files. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm glad you did because that's a, so things are so different here in the United States. When I work a case here, I file a request. I get the full case file and that's what we work off of. And so that's, you know, when yeah. I started working on this case, I kept the well, sooner or later I'll find this case file. Someone has this case file, right? And no, it's not the case over there in Scotland. No, they're, they're not made public over here at all. Certain documents like the appeal documents are made public, but that's it. Um, trial transcripts are massively expensive, uh-huh. hugely expensive. And although I have the defense papers, it's actually an offense for me to share them with third parties who are not directly working on the case. Wow. So if I were to put them online, for example, they're going to come for me. Right, right. As simple as that. Wow. And that's why I can, I can take excerpts and I can show excerpts. But the minute I start to pull full, put full documents out, that's when I cross the line. Wow. That seems so difficult to have any real accountability for the justice system when the public is never allowed to see what actually no. happened. That's, that's, that's amazing. Um, well, let's, let's get right into this. So, so last week in my episode, I kind of walked through the timeline of the different phone calls. And a lot of that was, uh, and so, stuff that's noted in your book is that there's a whole lot of confusion surrounding the timeline because the, the family, not just the family, everybody except Luke, there's sort of stories and accounts of the day keep changing. The 4.50 time, the the 5 o'clock or the 5.30 time when Jody left. Um, so we kind of left that open-ended where we really don't know other than originally it seemed like it was 5.30. Then later the story became 4.50. One thing that was asked uh, from some of my listeners this week was we had, I had touched on last week that there were people that saw Luke sitting on a wall in New Battle. So we talked a little about that, and we'll get more into that next week. But then the the question was, it was said that he, at some point during that night, was hanging out with some friends at the Abbey, and they asked, like, did the did the did his friends that were with him at the Abbey ever give statements? And if so, what did they say about it? Like, what time did he get there, and what was his demeanor and everything? Yeah, so the Abbey is directly opposite the wall at the end of his street where he's seen sitting. Yeah, and. He was waiting for Jodie and she didn't show and eventually thought he'd been stood up. Mm-hmm. So he went over into the Abbey to meet these three friends. One of them eventually at trial said that Luca told him Jodie wasn't coming out that evening. Mm-hmm. The prosecution point being 
how could he possibly have known that? Right. When she was coming down to meet him. The other two boys didn't just say, don't know. The other two boys said, he said nothing of the sort. Okay. And he only brought the boy who said he said Jody wasn't coming to give evidence. So again, it's this absence thing. Right. If, if the other two boys who were quite clear. Were they at least able to nail down a a time, like a time window when he was at the Abbey? Yes, he met um he met the boys just after seven o'clock. Okay. And he was with one of them had to go home about eight thirty mm-hmm. because he was only eleven. Okay. So <laughs> little really little kid. Um, who had tagged along with one of the older boys. Uh-huh. So he went, he and the older boy that came with left at half past eight. The other boy stayed with Luke until round about nine, ten, nine, fifteen. Yeah, they, they weren't looking at the watches, but it was round about that time. Okay. So th- but they, they all seem to agree Luke got there at around seven? Yeah. Okay. At what time was the sighting of him where people saw him sitting on the wall? He was sitting on the wall at about five to six. Okay. And then about 20 minutes later by boys who knew him from school. So they'd cycled past him on the way into Dalkeith. Mm-hmm. And then one of them got a puncture and had to push his bike all the way home. Okay. About 20 minutes later. So when he came back the other way, Luke was still sitting on the wall. There is a witness who said she saw him near an opening to some houses around about half past six. Okay. Now, this this little opening's a few yards from where he lives, but it's at the bend in the road where mm-hmm. he could have looked round to see if Jody was coming. And he said he walked up to that entrance to look round to see if there was any sign of Jody. That was half past six, and this other witness, uh, a woman in a car, said she saw him there at half past six, or somebody, somebody looked like it because she didn't know. So the the idea is, if we're looking at an innocent Luke, is that he has his dinner at his house at around five thirty. He goes down and waits at the wall, waits for a while until about six thirty, and then he looks to see if she's coming down the path, and then he just goes up to the abbey and hangs out with his friends. Yeah. So now we'll jump to we had a, we went through all the different timelines that night, and and you know around eleven o'clock the family ends up meeting Luke at the entrance to the Rones Dyke path. And I, I kind of gave a, the version that I was familiar with there, but, it, but I think it's better off here to just kind of reset that and have you just walk us through from the minute Luke meets Jody's family at the entrance of the path, kind of walk us through the rest of, of the events that followed after that. Yeah. If we can start just before that. Okay. The, the three members of Jody's family, we, we call them the search trio because there were four of them in the, the search party. So the right. search trio and family members. From the, from what they said in statements, first of all, they had no idea that Jody was going to be anywhere near the path that night. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the time they gave for leaving from Jody's mother's house, there was no way they could have got from there to the top of the path in time to meet Luke. And Luke's Luke timings are confirmed. So it's just important to, to bear that in mind. But Luke had said to Jody's mum, he would come up the path that Jody would have taken to come down. And if he didn't find her, he would make his way to the mum's house mm-hmm. where the grown-ups would decide what to do next. He was a 14-year-old boy. Right. 
You get two-thirds of the way up the path and there are people at the entrance to the path. And Jodie's grand shouts out, is that you, Luke? Mm-hmm. And they waited for Luke to meet them. Then they had this conversation about, did they have anything of Jodie's for the dog to scent? Mm-hmm. Because the grand had suggested a double check. But they didn't have anything of Jodie's and they just turned and went back down the path. Luke had just come up. Okay. Um, to, to do this double check. And a lot of people have said, why did the dog not react on the way up the path when Luke was on his own? And Luke has always said from the very beginning, she may well have done. She was really excited. He was flustered because he, you know, Jody's missing mm-hmm. and the dog was bouncing about. He said if she jumped at the wall, he would just have pulled it away. Right. Because she wasn't looking for anything. They were just going up the path. And if Jody was somewhere on the path, he'd get her and take her to her mum's. And if not, our mum would decide what to do next. Um, speaking of the dog, we had a conversation about the dog uh, in our in our Friday's episode. There was question about uh, one of our co-hosts was asking about you know like if the dog was if Luke was actually if he had trained the dog if the if the dog could find uh, someone just based on a command you know find Jody as opposed to a scent. Uh, after we were done recording, someone had told me, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, that either at trial or some at some point some expert had. I guess checked out Mia to see what her skills were, and what I was told was that they said she's actually exceptionally trained. Saying that ring a bell? It's, yeah, it's, it's a little bit it's a little bit mixed up. But on the right tracks, the the uh, gentleman who was training Mia, and and it was purely for a hobby. She wasn't being trained to be a working dog, but he'd been training military dogs for over twenty years, and he spotted he was a neighbour, and he spotted Mia's ability. And approached Luke and his mum and said, Do you want to give her a try and you know, see what see how well she does? Okay. And it was he who said in his statement, this dog had exceptional abilities. So that that's where that came from. Did he, did the neighbor, is he the one that was training the dog or was Luke training the dog? The the neighbor was training the dog, but he was also training Luke and Corrie, Luke's mum to train the dog as well so that he could step out and the dog would respond to them. Oh, okay. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, so now they're we're back to they're they're at the end of the path. They decide to go back and take a second look down the path, and and that's when Luke tells Mia to go find Jody, and they start walking down the path. Yeah, and they make their way down the path. Um, this V point that everybody talks about, the V break in the wall. It's simply because that's the only bit on that area of the path that you could get over the wall to the other side. Okay, the, the wall's about seven feet high. Okay. And the V comes down to about four feet above ground level, so you could get through there. Uh-huh. Luke's story is that Mia passed the V and then jumped up and started scrabbling at the wall and ear sniffing. Okay. And he recognized that as an alert, doubled back, handed the, the dog's lead to Jody's gran, who'd fallen behind, mm-hmm. went over the wall and turned left in the direction that the dog had reacted, and that's when he found Jodie. Her sister and her sister's boyfriend agreed for the first month in their statements that that is exactly what happened, to the extent that the sister's boyfriend describes the dog, saying it's a big dog, it's an Alsatian, when it was standing up at the V, its head was higher than the V. It's a very, very clear description. And that's in his police interview? Yes. Okay. Nan said that she couldn't say because they'd gone ahead of her and she'd fallen behind, so she couldn't see what the dog did. By the time we got, we get to the end of July, the first month, the search trio start to change the stories about what the dog did. And by the time we get to trial, the dog did nothing. There's no reaction from the dog. Luke went straight to the V and over the wall. And yet we have these descriptions. The the sister said the dog started going crazy and jumping about at the wall. The boyfriend gives this description, and then at trial, nothing. I'm stopping myself from jumping ahead because I have a lot of questions about how that works in in uh, when we get to the how that happened at trial. Uh, but we'll save yeah. that for another day. But but so if we're if we're working off the first month's worth of statements from everybody, everybody agrees the dog is is jumping and going crazy at the wall. Luke goes yeah. over. He and there seemed to be a little confusion there. So he he saw Jody's body, and then he comes back and tells Stephen that he found something, but he doesn't say what. Is that right? He calls out from the other side of the wall. Okay, I think there's something here. And Stephen and Janine have continued down the path. Uh huh. So past where the dog reacted, they're still going down. And Luke calls out. I think there's something here. By their statements, they ran back to the V in the wall. Uh-huh. Stephen goes over. Luke's still at the V, but on, on the woodland side. Uh-huh. Stephen goes down to exactly the same point that Luke did. And if you look at the descriptions, that they describe exactly the same tree and how they have to take a step to the ground uh-huh. in order to be able to see the body. They both describe the same injuries, the, the blood on the neck, the fact that she was naked, the fact that she was looking upwards. So, so they've obviously seen the same thing. Mm-hmm. Then 
the gran is very, very agitated and demands to be helped over the wall so that she can go and see what's there for herself. So, so that's the three of them. Luke, Stephen Kelly and the gran all go down. But the gran goes further than the boys. She goes right up to the body. And in the early days, the claim was that she cradled Jodie's body. And again, the statements change later to she touched Jodie's forehead. So there's a difference in the physical contact there. Can you talk us through the the whole the 999 calls? Because that was confusing. So Luke is the one that first called 999. Yes. So, So when Alice comes back up, Luke's calling 999 while Alice is coming back up. Mm-hmm. Um, he just says, can you ask the police to get here? We'll find something. And the operator says, oh, the lad is in a bit of state. He's, he's, you know, he's agitated, but he won't say what he found. So the, Alice gets over the wall and three minutes after Luke calls, the police call him back and say, where are you? We, we, we've got police officers there and we can't. We can't find you. And then six minutes after that, Stephen Kelly dials 999 and he's screaming at the police. It's an effing body. You need to get here. They're supposed to be meeting us. Now, what he said was they were in the mother's house. We phoned an hour ago. They were supposed to be meeting us here. Now, those three statements, if you just stop and think about it, how can that possibly be? Unless he's talking about Luke's call. When they called, when they called Luke back at 9.38 saying, sorry, 11.38 saying, where are you? How could there be an, an agreement to meet the search trio that was made an hour earlier when they just found Jodie's body? It's, it makes no sense. And I have the full transcript of those phone calls. So much of this makes no sense. So when, so when Stephen called, so we have Luke calls and says, we found something, get here. They call him back and, they say, where are you? Yeah. Then Stephen calls them and he says, there's a body. You're supposed to meet us at the path. Yeah. We, we phoned an hour ago. This is the, the important bit. We called an hour ago. They were supposed to be meeting us here. Oh, okay. So, so he specifically said in the transcript that he told the 999 operator that we called an hour ago and you're supposed to meet us at this location, which is where the body was found. Yeah. And that's 12 minutes. 11 minutes after they found the body. Interesting. Well, that's, that's definitely something to, uh, we'll sink our teeth into a little bit more next week. Let, let's talk about, so the, so the police get there and, and there's, there's some confusion about who found find the body. Cause from what I read, they think the police think that Luke was alone when he found the body and they were, they end up talking to the family at a different location. How did all that happen? When the police finally found them, and they weren't that far away, they were only about maybe 700 yards away, but there are two paths at right angles to each other, and the police have gone at right angles to Rowan's Dyke path rather than coming down the path. So once they figured that out, of course they made a beeline for where they'd been told they were. But when they arrived, they seemed to be of the impression that Luke and Luke alone had found the body, and the other three had arrived after. Luke found the body because one of them radios in and he said, there's three others here, the sister, our boyfriend and the gran. We think the boyfriend's found it. We're just getting the, the gran and the others just getting their names. 
Yeah, but they were all there together when it happened. Yeah, there's that sense that, but the original operator who's passing information between Luke, not Stephen Kelly, Luke, and the officers on the ground, refers to everything in the singular. He says he's found something. He says, get there quickly. But it sounds the whole time like there's only one person there. That makes sense. So so that's why they thought there was only one person yes. there. Is that why? So I also read that that then when they go to the police station, they take the family, the, the, the trio, and in one vehicle to all go to the police station to give statements. And then Luke is taken separately right there from the scene. Is that accurate? Almost. They take Luke almost immediately, within 20, half an hour maximum, probably 20 minutes. Luke's in the police car and he's gone. And he's, he's gone to a different police station on his own. They then leave the family in the car park behind the school for another two hours. And lots of members of Jody's family arrive and they're all mingling for two hours. And then they take the whole lot up to the East House's police station, get there and think, no, actually, we don't want everybody's statements. We just want our mum and our mum's partner's statements because they still haven't realised that the search trio are important. So they keep the mum and the mum's partner in the police station and they drive the search trio back to the mum's house, again, where all the other family members are gathered and they don't realise till five o'clock in the morning that they should get statements from the search trio. Wow. So that, so that it, it's starting to, to shed some light on why there was so much confusion around yeah. all of this. So they didn't even get statements from the other three people that were there until five in the morning. No. And, and the police officer, the main police officer in court actually said, we didn't realize there was a significant, we didn't know they'd been over the wall. Okay. That makes sense. So meanwhile, at the time I had read was 11.55 p.m., Luke's taken to the police station. 11.55, the, by 11.55, they were all in the car park. So they'd taken the trio to the car park. Okay. Luke was left behind because the officer wanted him to come back over the wall and show him where Jody's body was, and he refused. So this officer goes over the wall, leaves Luke on the path on his own. He's the youngest of the search party. Leaves him on his own. Finds Jody, radios in and goes, yeah, it's a body. Comes back over the wall and then takes Luke up. So by 5 to midnight, they're all in the car park. Luke's sitting on the pavement beside Stephen Kelly and they're smoking a cigarette. And that's when the officer comes and tells Luke to get in the police car. And there's a bit of to and fro in there. His mum's trying to call him. The policeman takes his phone off him, switches it off then switches it back on and tells him to dial his mum's number so that the policeman can tell her to come to the police station, mm-hmm. switches his phone back off again, puts it in his pocket again. So there's, there's no there's no forensic care being taken with this phone whatsoever. And off he goes by, I would say, quarter past 12 at the latest. He's gone. And the, and the police officer has his phone. Yeah. So real quick, because that was another thing that came up. I was told that there was an expert that examined the phone to look for the text messages and that they had testified to or stated that the text messages to and from Judith 
were deleted off of Luke's phone sometime after 12.30 a.m. the next day. Is that true, accurate? The call logs were deleted after 12.30, yes. But what that expert said was it may have been the opening of the phone and the attempts to interrogate the phone that deleted everything. So they can't say they were deleted after that. They could have been deleted earlier, or it could have been the action of opening the phone to, to get the data from it that deleted everything. And he says that in his report. And and that that happened after. Essentially, what I'm getting at is Luke did not delete that log. It was in the no. officer's possession when the log was yeah. deleted. Was there, I've had a million questions about the text on Judith's phone side. Those were never, it was never figured out what happened with those either? No, the, the content was never recovered. The, the details of the texts were on phone logs. So Luke's number and the time. The time that it happened, right. But the actual content was never recovered. Okay. So when Luke gets to, I'm trying, we got, so we got kind of parallel things happen here and we'll, we'll, we'll go with Luke first and then I want to go back to the body. So Luke is there for, till what, six in the morning, about six hours. What goes on during his time at the police station? When he first arrived, the police stripped him and put him in the white paper suit. His mum hadn't arrived yet. They knew she was coming, but these two officers just stripped him there and then. His mum arrived. Um, they called in a, a police doctor to examine him for, for injuries, any fresh bruises, scratches, cuts, anything like that. Swabbed him for DNA, took care samples, photographed his entire body, looking for anything that might connect him to the crime. And then they basically questioned him and his mum till it was actually almost seven o'clock in the morning. But interestingly, they didn't interview them together. They separated them. They were in the same room, but Luke was speaking to one officer at this end of the room and his mum was speaking to a different officer at that end of the room. So right from that point, there's this, there's no support for this 14-year-old kid. Right. Not even got his mum sitting beside him while he's being questioned. And then they kicked him out at seven o'clock in the morning. And I guess the family just thought that's what happens immediately after the body's found. That's how it's done because they, they didn't know how these things work. Yeah. And so in the U.S., that type of treatment to me would, would indicate that he is they were treating him as a suspect, not as a witness at that point. Is that accurate in, this, in Scotland, too? That's not how you treat a, a witness. No. And the, the Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission, which is the body that looks at um, cases where there might be a miscarriage of justice, agreed that Luke was a suspect from the minute he was put in that police car and driven away and the other three searchers were left to go about their business. So here's a question that, that's just about the different countries and the law. So in the United States, if that's the case, if it's determined he's a suspect, then he's required, here we call it Mirandize, um, but he's required to be made aware of his rights and he's, he's, he's allowed to have a lawyer, he doesn't have to speak. D does, is there something similar to that in Scotland it's because he was a suspect where he should have been allowed to have a lawyer? Well, there is now, but back in 2003, we had what were called Section 14 interviews, and only in Scotland. They don't have them anywhere else in the UK. Okay. The Section 14 interview allows the police 
to bring someone in for questioning for up to seven hours with no access to legal advice or representation, including children. Wow. So there was technically they didn't violate any laws by doing this, having him there with not at the time. No. Wow. That's un- that's unfortunate. I thought we had problems here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so during those that he, he's being interrogated, all this happen is happening. Were there any? Was there anything that he said? Any admissions during that interview or any forensics they found on him during that that was incriminating? That was a use at trial. Nothing. The same is true of the fourth of July when they raided his house and took him in for a second. So we also had a thing in Scotland that they could do before a Section 14 interview, which was a voluntary attender interview, where they could they don't keep them for seven hours. They can go whenever they please. But when you look at how these interviews are carried out, there's no way they're going to just get up and walk out. Right. It's, it's not going to happen. But again, no lawyer. So the night, Jody, well, into the morning after Jody was found, and the 4th of July, there was nothing in anything he said that was in any way incriminating and there was no forensic evidence not at the crime scene and not after the raided house on the 4th. There was nothing. I had read that it was noted that his hair was dirty. There was dirt on his feet. Basically, there was no indication that he had cleaned himself up or taken a shower. No, no, good deal of evidence that he hadn't. Right, and that's a great transition back to the condition of Jody's body. So, uh, I've heard lots of things. I've heard there was sexual assault. I heard there wasn't sexual assault. I've heard lots of things. So, you actually know the answers to this. So, what do we know about Jody's body? He had been quite severely beaten badly bruised. Her hair had been pulled out in clumps. She'd she'd been dragged by the hair. That much was very clear. There was what was believed to be a bite mark or or an upper teeth imprint on the back of one of her hands. She had extensive defence injuries, horrific defence injuries. She had been strangled. They don't know if that was manually or using a ligature, but they don't believe the strangulation killed her. And then the cutthroat injuries that did kill her between 12 and 20 cutthroat wounds, virtually decapitating her. Then, now the, the prosecution claim is after that, the attacker stripped her, tied her hands behind her back with her own trousers, and then mutilated her body by cutting round her eyes, slashing open her face from her lip almost to her ear, massive slash mark on her breast, and two slash marks on her abdomen. I have since seen the reports, and it, it this is horrific, but the wound from the lip almost to the ear, which was right through, was not post-mortem. That's terrible. Yeah. Were the, so she's got 12 to 20 
stab wounds in the in the neck that I believe is that's what, what the cause of death was. Yeah. Which would which to me would indicate that that would have been there would have been heavy you know if they cut her carotid arteries there should be heavy heavy bleeding from that, and they believe that other than the cut on her from her lip to her ear through the cheek that one was was perimortem uh, yeah. before she was dead but the, the the rest of the injuries to the body they think were postmortem wounds most of them the obviously the defense wounds were were before and again they are extensive that one of the cuts in her arm is through to the bone so that again would have bled a great deal so it's an enormous injury and then they decide that the killer wouldn't necessarily be covered in blood. That's an interesting take. I mean, this is a very, just from my experience, this is a very up close and personal attack. You have major arteries being severed and especially a wound to the arm. When you're flinging your arms around, I would think that, that the killer would be, they would, they would have blood all over them. Yeah. Wow. I, I, so, so they, so it, so I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's, but a trial. They, uh, the, their case was that the killer wouldn't have had blood on them. Not necessarily. Right. Because of course, Luke didn't have blood on him. Yeah. And, and now what, what I didn't know. So, so when she was found, her hands were tied behind her back with her own trousers. Yeah. Okay. And was she, was she fully nude or did she have any clothing on? The only clothing she had on were her socks and they were only half on. So, so the, they were on from over her toes to the middle of her foot and then folded back in themselves. Uh, where were her clothes found or were they? They were round, scattered round the area where her body was found. Okay. Did they do a kit to figure out if there had been any sexual assault? There appeared, it's a really difficult one, there appeared to be no evidence of rape. For me, a 14-year-old girl stripped naked with a breast cut. There's a sexual element to it. Yeah, that is a sexual assault. Yeah. And then when you when you take into account that there was a condom with fresh semen within 20 yards of the body, for me, at the very least, sexual attack or a sexually motivated attack should have been right at the top of the list. And for the police, initially, it was. And then they dropped it. Do you know the de- so when they determined there was no evidence of sexual assault, was that as simple as there was no semen found in her, or or through examination of the area they determined? That, I, I don't. Yeah, no, no bruising or or abrasion consistent with forced sexual intercourse. So they, I assume they would testify to this if they're being intellectually honest, that not seeing obvious signs of sexual, uh, of penetrative sexual assault doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't happen. Exactly. Yeah. Did, did they at least, did they at least concede to that, that it could have, but it just, they didn't? No. So they, okay. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I really wish I could be more positive, but no, they, they didn't. Um, they did, they did try to investigate the possibility of rape with a condom not leaving the sorts of injuries they seem to be expecting there to be is, is the most bizarre thing but then they dropped that as well they got so far with it and then they then they just decided it was not a, a sexual assault 
And in doing that, dropped any possibility that it was a sexually motivated assault. And again, these are two different things. Right. But they dropped both. Just curious, and this is again me getting ahead of myself, but did they drop the sexual assault angle before or after they realized that the semen in the condom didn't belong to Luke? It must have been after. Because they didn't, they didn't know who it did belong to. They just knew it didn't belong to Luke. Right. I'm just trying to think from memory the, the timing of the various events. That's usually when we say wrongful convictions here in, in the States, you, you find things like that, that they'll, they find a piece of evidence that they're sure is connected to the crime. They have their suspect. They test it. It's not theirs. And suddenly now it doesn't, it's not part of the crime anymore. Well, the, the 14th of July seems to have been the turning point when the first forensics came back and there was nothing on Luke. And the, if you look back at the media coverage, that's when the whole narrative from the police started to change as well. Mm-hmm. So all the, all the original beliefs about maybe it was some, you know, somebody that was sexually embarrassed in the woods and all of this, that all just goes away after the results come back. That's, that's kind of how I figured that happened. So is she, more question about the, so was she found on her back or, or face down? Neither. She was on her side with her upper body twisted sort of upwards. So, so lying, she'd been lying on her side clearly. And when she was found, her, her lower body was still on her side with her upper body kind of twisted sort of upwards but no she wasn't she was neither on her back nor face down i had also read that there were there were some complications with the the medical examiner that and this sounds crazy and i'm hoping you're telling me this is wrong because it's it's crazy and the way you're smiling i'm assuming it's not i had read that the medical examiner couldn't get over the wall that night so they just left her body in the woods overnight yes was anybody guarding the body? Well, apparently there was a, a policeman guarding the scene the whole night, but there was no tent put over Jodie's body. She was left out in the elements. And the officer that was supposed to be guarding the scene said nobody had entered the scene until about five o'clock in the morning when we know that the police photographers had been over there. The, the um, first forensic team had been over there before five o'clock. Not, not the forensics team who actually examined the site, I have to point out. And these were guys that were brought by the senior investigating officer. So there have been several people over the wall, and the guy that's meant to be guarding the body says there's been nobody there till five o'clock in the morning. So he's either sleeping on the job, not there, or lying. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, rain, it, it should be pointed out, it rained that night. So it did, yeah. her body had been rained on by the time the medical examiner gets there to examine her. Did they at least get crime scene photos taken prior to that? The crime scene photographs are very interesting because Jodie's body had been rolled onto a plastic sheet at some point while the photographs were being taken. So you have some photographs where she's clearly on the ground and there's leaves and you know what you'd expect to find in the woodland strip. And then she's turned over and she's on a plastic sheet. And the forensics guys haven't got there yet. 
it was one of the one of the big criticisms at trial. Yeah. The the um forensic officer who finally got there at eight o'clock the following morning. He was very kind to them. He said it was not an ideally managed crime scene. That's an, <laughs> quite an understatement. Yep. Was her and and I think this is about as far as we're gonna go today. Um, mm -hmm. but with the with her body was there blood on her body? Was there blood on her clothes? Does does it? I think you either you had mentioned that it looked like she was dressed when she was. Or I had read that she was dressed when she was killed, and then stripped. Does that seem to be right? I still can't quite figure it out. When when she was found, her entire upper body was clean of blood that had flowed, mm -hmm. completely clean. Now, if she was, if her throat was cut when she was sitting or kneeling, which was the clean. You would have expected at least some of the blood to have gone down the way and soaked through her clothing. Yeah. But her bra is almost untouched by blood. There's a couple of contact stains on it. The t-shirt is very heavily blood stained. Her hoodie, one side of her hoodie is very heavily blood stained. But by the time you get to the bra and the body, there's virtually nothing. And there was no blood in the ground where she was found. And there's a blood spray on the wall, which they tried to say was arterial spray. Nothing of the sort. Far, far, far too little, far too fine. There is no way that is arterial spray. So where's the blood and why is she so clean of blood? But it sounds like we can deduce that if her hoodie and her shirt were covered in blood and they weren't on her that she was wearing them when she was killed yes my my feeling is not necessarily she wasn't necessarily wearing them as she would do normally as in they may have been pulled up as as if to pull them over her head which might explain why the bra wasn't didn't have blood soaked through it what about was there was there blood on the trousers that were that were binding her hands? Yes, there were. No, there was no blood in the knots or the twists, so that would suggest that no blood had been deposited there prior to the the tying of the hands. There are drips and splashes on the trousers, but nothing, nothing that you would call heavily blood stained. So again claim that she was sitting or kneeling for her trousers to have escaped. Yeah, well, and if there's no blood inside the knots, that would, to me, that would indicate that her pants were off and her t hands had been bound prior to her throat being slit, yeah. which makes sense because why would you bind a dead person's hands? Yes, it's, it's not the prosecution case. It's, it's the logical case, but it's not the prosecu prosecution case. Well, that is a perfect time uh, to stop in a, in a good transition because what I would like to do next week is get into, because everything we've heard so far, at least for me, from my perspective, this sounds insane that they charged and convicted Luke. And I know you've seen it all and you still feel that way. But I think that the next step that we usually take in this process uh, on our show here is the next step we do is go through what was the prosecution's case and then. We'll go through the defense case and figure out you know what what they got wrong.
So if you're okay with that, we'll connect again next week and we will we will talk about the prosecution's case and how Luke was convicted. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm here for any questions if anybody's is there anything anybody doesn't understand, just let me know. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Lean, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com Design Created manages and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kaywood Yomnik, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review doesn't cost you a penny and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible if you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering you can submit your cases on our website truthandjusticepod.com just click on the case submission button and fill out the form and the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations you can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com you can like our facebook page follow us on instagram or join in on the conversation on the truth and justice podcast fans page for all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod, and I can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch, but as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>